0: Welcome to Ink's The Founder's Project with Alexa von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVast, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week I'm excited for you to meet David Velez, founder and CEO of Nubank, the largest independent digital bank in the world. David founded Nubank in Brazil in 2013. He has scaled the business to a valuation north of $25 billion and has grown the customer base to over... 39 million users. NewBank was named to the time 100 list of most influential companies and Fast Company's most innovative company lists. Prior to NewBank, David was a partner at Sequoia Capital in charge of the firm's Latin American investments. Before that, he worked in investment banking and growth equity at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and General Atlantic. David has a BS in management science and engineering from Stanford and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Let's welcome David. Hi there, I'm so happy to have you here today.
1: Thank you, Alexa. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast.
0: So let's just start with like the staggering numbers. NewBank has over 39 million customers and is the largest digital bank in the world. For those of us who are not in Latin America, we may not be familiar with NewBank. So let's just start from the basics. What's so NewBank in your own words? And let's go back to that moment in 2012 when you first moved to Brazil. What was your big aha moment when you said, I should go build this?
1: I've always been an entrepreneur looking for a big opportunity to to start something. And I always tell the story about me trying to open a bank account here in Sao Paulo in 2012, having to go to one of those big bank branches, getting stuck in this bulletproof door surrounded by armed guards looking at me like a criminal, waiting for 30 minutes to try to talk to somebody. getting asked for more paperwork and starting effectively a process of four or five months to be able to finally get a simple bank account and a credit card. And as I reflected on that entire experience and I realized how frustrating and painful and time-consuming it was, I I just couldn't imagine that that was the best financial services in Brazil and Latin America could offer. This is one of the most profitable banking industries in the world, Brazil's banking has been growing for 30, 30, 40% per year over the past 10, 15 years. And I just couldn't understand how people were putting up with that type of experience and how anybody was trying to just compete with better experience. So that was sort of the aha moment, just thinking, this is a great opportunity. Uh, Technology is changing the landscape in Brazil. By that point, Brazil was one of the most connected countries in the world, very large audience in, in social media. And so the idea was really to use the smartphone and use technology to build a new generation financial services platform to serve all consumers, both banked and unbanked, and offer better financial services products at low or no cost.
0: It's really amazing to think about, to your point, what what existed before. Paint the picture for what banking looked like in Latin America before Nubank, both in terms of access and fees. And just the logistics that people had to go through to get access to basic services that here in the United States, we really take for granted.
1: So if you are part of the lucky you know, 60, 70 percent of the population that the banks will talk to, because there's always 30 to 40 percent of the population that banks don't even have an interest in talking to. But let's talk first about the first part. Then your experience would be, if you want to open a bank account, would be to go to a bank, a big bank branch where you are treated a lot of the times like a criminal you are made wait 30 40 minutes to talk to somebody that honestly doesn't really want to help you is they're doing their 9 to 5 job trying to leave as soon as possible banks in brazil it's it's an oligopoly industry you have five banks that own 90% of the industry that means that over the past 20 years that has created a lot of complacency in those big banks they've made a lot of money without really having to try that hard and so that created this sort of ignorance of consumers where they're taking for granted. And so going back to that branch, you just have to wait and have patience and bring a lot of paperwork so that after a few months, you are given the luxury of a simple bank account, a credit card, and by the way, you're charged some of the highest fees in the world to get access to that. Uh, Brazil's interest rates, Brazil APR credit cards is close to five hundred percent a year. That's compared to US something like 25. And to get a simple bank account, you had to pay, you know, 200, 300 reais, which is something like 80, $90 dollars per year for a product that, that, for a fee that is very, very high for most consumers income. And so again, this is for the lucky ones that could, that could, uh, that could have access to banking. And then you have a quarter of Latin America's population, almost 200 million people that are not welcome in the banking branches. They don't have enough money to be welcome. Banks have no interest in opening a bank account. You're going to deposit $100 or $200, which is average income for a big percentage of the population, which meant they had to effectively put their savings under their mattress. And if they had need a loan, they would go to the neighbor who would charge even more exorbitant rates. They would not have access to a mortgage. They would not have access to to, uh, to an auto loan. So very percent of the population outside that system. And the opportunity that we saw was really changing that entire landscape for both consumers and our bank population.
0: Let's quickly fast forward to your first product. So you decided one to launch with a credit card and you particularly made it purple, bright purple. Talk a little bit about just that early customer acquisition, how you thought about it. So you, you started with a wildly big pain point It's wild that most people don't have access to a service that we almost take for granted in the rest of the world. And then you started with credit cards because you didn't have a banking license. You didn't get the banking license until 2017. Why credit cards first? How did you think about it? And how did you start building traction?
1: We thought about different strategies. And the strategy that made the most sense to us initially was following a bit the roadmap of Capital One in the U.S., or of another company called Tinkoff Credit Systems in Russia, which was seen as the capital one of Russia. And we like the idea of starting with a credit card first uh, as as these other companies did for a number of different reasons. First, one of the biggest hurdles to start a new banking brand was building trust with customers one thing that big banks do have is trust as a consumer you know that you're going to deposit your life savings in that bank and it's going to be there nobody's going to go grab that money and run away with it so banks do have trust as a new entity with no branches fully digital we thought it was going to be very very hard to start with a savings product to suddenly come out to market and say hey consumer give me your life savings customers are going to say who are you where do i go if i need my money uh you don't even have a license so we thought that that path was going to have too much friction was going to effectively be very very large customer acquisition cost a lot of investment in marketing which we didn't have versus starting with credit first we are taking all the risk as a consumer worst case scenario you take my credit card you use it and you don't pay there is no downside for you as a cons- as a consumer we're taking all the risk as an institution so that meant lower friction for customer acquisition. We'll give you a loan. And that gives us the first, the entry point, the first step into start building a relationship with trust of us starting to tell you the story of the, the different type of institution we're building. So that hopefully a few years down the road, you trust us enough that we can have your deposits, can have your savings. And that was the path that we followed. We started with credit card. It allowed us to build trust with a lot of the customers. We build a cost. Uh, we have a, a company as, 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 a, as a culture that we are obsessed for the customer experience. We spent spend, maybe at we spend hours and hours and hours discussing the user experience, discussing what words were we allowed to use with consumers and what words were illegal inside Bank. Uh, because financial services banks, they love complexity. They love adding a lot of different words so that consumer gets just lost and ends up paying more fees that that, that she needs or ends up getting into debt. Uh, we spent hours and hours de- uh, answering customers' emails, answering customers' uh, phones. So that really allowed us to, to, to get into a consumer smartphone, start building a relationship with trust. And and start growing extremely fast through word of mouth.
0: You have a really innovative approach to figuring out who your best customers are and will be through a really powerful referral strategy and with a wait list, which again, not many banks thought to think about building their brand that way. And then you use really thoughtful thousands of pieces of data. So just a little bit more on that customer acquisition strategy and what you really unlock there. Sure,
1: is, is is we always find it interesting how uh, constraints can be such a bliss, and we had a ton of constraints initially. First, we started with a credit product, which meant we were going to need a lot of funding, and funding was nowhere to be found in Brazil in 2015, 2016. We talked to a lot of funders, especially on the debt side. Nobody had any interest to provide debt funding to a startup credit card that had no legacy information that had no proprietary credit model at that point, in the middle of the worst Brazilian recession in a hundred years, it was as risky of a project as you can possibly imagine. And so we had to grow slowly because we just we were funding ourselves with our own equity. We also could just not approve 100% of the customers that wanted the car. By definition, in credits, you have to say no to a large percentage of the people, especially if you wanna grow sustainably, and you're trying to build the proprietary credit underwriting. So since the beginning, we unfortunately had to say no to over 80% of the people that went into our product. That's very odd in consumer internet, where if 100 people want your product, you say yes to 100 people. Here, we had to say no to 80 out of 100, and so it was a huge constraint. And In discussing with our early team, we realized that that constraint could actually be an opportunity and what we decided to do was instead of telling those 80 out of 100 customers, no, you cannot have this product, as the banks do, we told customers, customer, right now we cannot tell you yes, we hope that over the next few months our models evolve so fast that we'll be able to tell you yes, go from no to yes. And by the way, if you get invited by our existing customers, we'll give you priority. We'll take that into account in our credit model and the probability you'll get invited will be higher. And so that helped us first get a lot of customers, starting to look for existing customers that created a new couple of communities in Facebook where people would go and say, hey, does anybody have an invite for new bank? I get that. I wanna get access to that card that created an element of scarcity in the market and and created sort of an element of aspirational to the brand where I want that car but I cannot have it. And uh, I helped us build a brand that was very much differentiated and decommoditized from the old boring commoditized brand of the big banks. And so more people starting to apply, we had to say more people, no, you cannot have it yet which created even more scarcity which created even more demand for the product and after you know 18 months we have a million people in our waiting list and 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 every time we invited somebody the take up of that invite was almost immediate people would accept accept the card would have a very high activation would would have very high engagement and extremely low churn so we we were able to turn that let's say product weakness of being in credit and not being to grow too fast into a huge opportunity of building an aspirational brand and a flywheel of customer acquisition that enabled us to even now grow with almost 95% of our customers being completely unpaid, having zero, zero customer acquisition costs, or you know, 95% of the 39 million customers that we have.
0: Naveed, that is actually wild. Just to repeat it again, you're at the point where you have almost 40 million customers and more than 90 plus percent of that has all been through word of mouth and organic. I mean, it's really wild. You've had this great quote that I love that I just want to quickly repeat. You've said, you don't see yourself as a bank at all, but in fact, as a tech company that happens to be in financial services. Can you just tell us a little bit more of what you mean by that?
1: Sure, so when we think about, since the beginning when we thought about Bank, we thought we were going to build a company that was differentiated, In a number of different ways the first one was that consumer obsession we were going to build products that were extremely good for customers we're going to go way beyond to build an amazing experience for those customers that were so underserved and the second part of that is we're going to be able to do the only way that we're going to be able to enable that at very large scale was through technology was building we were going to need to build a very efficient sophisticated technology platform so that we could serve tens or even hundreds of billions of customers with extremely high uh, NPS or consumer experience at a very very low cost and so we always seen ourselves more of a more closer to a technology company closer to a let's say an Amazon or a Netflix, who tends to define themselves that way these are companies that also are obsessed about the experience and need technology to be able to scale we we see ourselves closer to those type of companies and we've architecture our dna and our culture closer to those companies than traditional banks which tend to see themselves as a financial institution where customers come second and technology is almost in a different building is this legacy code that was mixed up over decades of consolidation and today is a, is a huge liability that doesn't really allow them to to succeed. So while well, for banks or let's say in company institutions, customer and technology is completely secondary, for us those are completely primary and we've architected everything to, to be able to be good at both, at the consumer experience and at the technology we're building to support that experience at scale.
0: You they didn't care, raised over a billion dollars in capital, which is a lot anywhere, but particularly in Brazil. I read that in 2016, you'd close an $80 million round, while the rest of all of Brazilian startups combined has had raised $340 million that year, which is pretty crazy. So let's talk a little bit about just now that you are the booming leader in digital banks globally. What are your ambitions going forward? How do you think about the next three to five years ahead of you? How do you think about measuring your impact? What are your plans? What's your strategy? Let's fast forward?
1: yeah, so 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 answering to your first part of the question, we are one of the things that we're the most proud about is how we, broke the ceiling of Latin America as a place to invest in, in entrepreneurship and technology. As, uh, you, know, as, as, as you mentioned, I, before starting New Bank, I was with Sequoia, and after looking at Brazil for two years, we took the decision, the very sad decision as a Latin American, that it was a big market, but there was no, there were no interesting startups. And Sequoia decided to close their office here even before they started it. It was a very sad moment. Uh, and frustrating for me because this is one of the largest markets in the world It's a 750 million population. But the reality is that there was very little entrepreneurship, there was very little capital, people or engineers were not thinking about starting their own businesses, they were going to the old same companies. And one of the things that with Newbank we've been able to do is almost break that ceiling and in, in, inspire what we see is a new generation of really amazing technology startups coming out of Brazil and Latin America. We were the first investment for a lot of Silicon Valley investors. We were the first investment in Brazil for Sequoia, the first investment for Founders Fund, the first investment for DST, for Tencent, for TCV. And so once they saw Brazil through us, now they're actively investing in a a number of other startups. And finally, Brazilian startups have access to some of the best investors in the world. So we are very proud of seeing ourselves as part of Engaging or igniting that technological system in Latin America. And but answering to your second part of the question, we still see ourselves as as, as being in the very, very early, early stages of, of, of the mission that we have. Even though we have 40 million customers in Brazil, we have less than 10% market sharing credit card, which is our biggest product. When we look at our market in savings, in consumer lending, in insurance, in investments, which are some of the new verticals that we've launched. We have less than 2 or 1% in every, in every single one of these verticals. We are growing incredibly fast in Mexico today. We launched about a year ago. We still have less than 1% market share. We launched Colombia a few months ago. We have 0% market share. So when we think about the next 10 to 20 years, there is so much growth ahead across financial services, across Latin America. And ultimately, we're also think that the opportunity of new bank goes beyond financial services because when we take a step back and we think about what problem we're actually trying to solve, ultimately the problem we're solving is access to good services for consumers. Forget financial services. When you look at a Latin American consumer, access to insurance or access to telecom or access to education or access to healthcare is as poor or poorer than what they've seen in financial services. And, and so we think that over a longer period of time there's opportunities to really even go beyond providing that consumer focus and using that technology we built to increase service and increase access across a number of different verticals.
0: If you fast forward a decade, given that you have such an interesting point of view, any predictions for the future of FinTech in Latin America that you have?
1: Sure. I mean, I think it's also as I, as I was mentioning. I think it's the early stages of fintech in Latin America. Even Newbank is the is the largest fintech, but again, we have less than ten percent market share in credit card. We have one two percent market share in everything else, and we're the largest. That means that the five big banks in Brazil still still own ninety percent of all the insurance, all the lending, all the mortgages, all the auto loans. You look at Mexico, same thing. Five banks are on 85% of the market. Colombia, same thing. Peru, same thing. Chile, same thing. So I think over the next 10 years, the largest financial services providers will be fintechs in every single, probably in most verticals. And that means just a huge opportunity for fintechs to grow in a number of different of those segments and sub-segments. And in both banked customers, as well as providing financial services to 250 million people that even today, don't have access to any financial
0: services products. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Let's transition a little bit to you. You were born in Colombia. You have many family members that are entrepreneurs. Do you think you were born an entrepreneur?
1: I don't know if I was born, but I definitely was peer pressured and and I, I was made to drink the Kool-Aid for breakfast every single morning in, in the environment that I grew up. My dad has 11 siblings. They're all entrepreneurs. They're small businesses, but, but each one is an entrepreneur in charge uh, and, and, and that owns their own time. My mom's side, they're also entrepreneurs. And so I just sort of grew up hearing this Uh, this path of entrepreneurship as being the path to follow, as uh, really finding the freedom and the autonomy that entrepreneurship creates as something to look forward to. And so as I grew up, for me, it was very, very clear that that's the path that I wanted to eventually follow. It wasn't automatic for me. It took me over a decade of going to work for other companies and getting enough experience to, let's say, be feel Prepared enough to, to to take on the entrepreneurship path, but uh, but yeah, I think it was very obvious to me as I grew up that that's what I wanted to do.
0: I love it. And um, you attended Stanford. This is one of my favorite facts about you. And you paid for part of your tuition through money that you made by buying a cow at age twelve that you sold. Talk a little bit about just like your point of view as you show up on Stanford's campus, coming from you know a very very different background. It was a culture shock? How'd it go?
1: Yeah, so I mean, Stanford was a dream for me just because what it represented in terms of entrepreneurship. As as you said, I I I was I was doing a couple, number of different little entrepreneurship projects growing up, including buying a cow from my dad that became two cows, that then became four cows, that then became eight cows. And and so uh, when I showed up to Stanford, I had the same mentality like what I, what what are we going to do here? What what are we going to start? Uh, and there were a lot of people in that environment asking the same question uh surprisingly though i just I, it wasn't very clear to me though where to begin i was i remember sophomore year saying i'm not gonna go do the traditional summer internship that everybody's getting i want to start something but i just didn't know what to, i don't even you know i didn't know what to do and 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 you know it, it wasn't automatic to me how to start a business but it's definitely that that uh that career of that feeling of people starting their own things that was very much aspire to a Stanford. I think that that gave me more motivation to eventually pursue that that path.
0: What are your hacks for staying sane that you could pay it forward to everybody listening?
1: I think just managing your own you know psychology as the company grows is probably the biggest challenge of any entrepreneur. I've tried a number of different things. Uh, first, Exercising is super important for me. I wake up very early, 4.45, 5 in the morning every day, and, and try to do at least one to one and a half hours exercise, uh, both, I like running, I like uh, lifting weights. And, and, I, and I find that that's, if at 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm done with one hour exercise, I feel that I'm already winning the day. Like that's early in the day, but I'm already ahead. And I love the way I feel about that and, 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 the, and the motivation, the energy I get from, from exercising. That also means that I need to go to bed very early. Uh, sleep is super important. I do need eight hours uh, every morning, which means I'm in bed by 9 p.m. So I'm a very early bird. The other part is through the day is also, I think I've yeah, experimented with meditation. I don't think I've practiced yet. I've gone through months doing a very good job with the meditation, then it all goes away. And then I have to start again. The experiment of one minute of meditation before starting a meeting with a management team has worked very well. We've done it, we stopped it, we've done it. But that has been very useful in that when we sit in a table, everybody in the executive team is bringing so many other distractions and is carrying so many different weights that we found that it was very hard for us to get focused on a number of different topics and be fully present. And so by just taking one minute of silence at the beginning, that would give us the opportunity for everybody in the team to take a breath and say, okay, here we are. let's let's rest here for a second. Let's be present. Let's be our best selves. We're gonna discuss tough topics uh, that sometimes keeping our emotions check allows us to have better conversations. And that worked out that has worked out very well for us. So um, so anyway, some of those those have been some of the tools that I that we've experimented. The last thing I'll say is for me, I have uh, three kids. They're all young. Uh, to me, it's super important to spend quality of time with them. So I, I have an incredibly intense day, but I try really hard to be back at home with them for dinner and, uh, and have breakfast with them every morning. And, and knowing that at least, even if I don't spend too much time with them, it is very, very high quality time. To me, is very, very important through, through, the, de- through the week and through, through the day.
0: Last question on you. If you had to think about the most important thing that you got great at as a founder, what would it be?
1: I don't think I'm great yet and necessarily anything. I've improved a lot in a number of different dimensions. I think the dimension that I've improved the most that is very impactful for the organization is consistently pushing to have better and better and better and better people across the board. Is knowing what a great, great world-class talent looks like. I think for a founder, it's very hard to know that initially because you've never really seen that, uh, and so it's, always, it's just very hard to know is, if you if you really are at a world class level or you're not. And I've had the you know the, the luck to increasingly work with and, and seek to work with better and better better people that. That, that can take their teams, that can take what we do at back to a whole new level when they join. So that's something that that, that sort of uh, ambition to have incredibly great people working with us is something that I, that I elevated, and I think that has had a significant impact for the organization.
0: David, I'm going to move to a really quick fire round. I'm going to ask fast questions. You tell me whatever first comes to mind. What gets you out of bed every morning?
1: being better and learning
0: what's the favorite book that you would recommend to everybody that changed your life
1: uh i love gabriel garcia marquez hundred years of solitude
0: best interview question that you like to ask people to really get a sense of who they are
1: Uh, i ask a lot about what people's parents did with their mom and with their dad and generally i ask what their mom expected of them i I find that there is there's a lot of insights into people's relationship with their parents and, the, and how their parents thought about their kids, because ultimately they are the ones that build the values of that candidate. And so you can go really deep and really personal by understanding by asking a lot of those early, early years.
0: Biggest pinch me moment to date, where you actually went home to your family and you said, I cannot believe that just happened at Nubank. Biggest pinch me moment.
1: Um, I'm I'm in the office right now. And I remember coming into this building in 2015 and just not believing that this was going to be our office. We started the business in a house, two floor house. Uh, My CTO co-founder lived in the second floor. We had meetings on the floor because we didn't have furniture. And a year and a half after, we were about to close the lease on, on, on it's not a gigantic building, it's a six floor building, but it's a beautiful building. And, and just seeing this building from the outside and being willing to sign that lease, to me was a complete pinch me moment. I couldn't believe it.
0: Fast forward two years, how many days a week will we be in an office?
1: Two to three.
0: Any other startup that you wanna give a shout out to that you just think is doing something really special that you've learned about recently?
1: Uh, there is a startup in Brazil that's called Dr. Consulta that is uh, providing healthcare to a large percentage of Brazilians that have no access to healthcare, which I love. It has an incredible amount of so, uh, societal impact. Uh, I feel that if it's painful to have bad access to financial services, it really is painful to have bad access to healthcare. And in Brazil, the top 5% has great healthcare, the other 95% but the population has really, really bad healthcare, uh, especially when, when you're thinking about public healthcare, which is what people can't afford. People are waiting three, four days to get an x ray in when they are in a lot of pain. And so, what Dr. Consulta is trying to do is expand access to healthcare services across Brazil at a very, very low cost. And I just think that it's not only a great business, but it's also very, very impactful to the entire population. So, I love this startup.
0: I love that. First of all, David, thank you so much. Everybody out there, um, thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about NewBank, you can head to newbank.com.br. You can join us next week for Inc. the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. David, you are an absolute inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us today. What an honor to have you.
1: Thank you, Alexa. It was a pleasure.